0: For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Three dates. The first one is July 4th of this past year. On July 4th, I did what I usually do, not setting off fireworks, but reading from the founding documents of this country and also the great speeches given on behalf of our country. This past year, I chose to read Abraham Lincoln's second inaugural address, perhaps the greatest, or at least one of the greatest speeches ever given in this country. Do you remember its closing words? With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the right, Let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow, and for his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. Forget for a moment, if you can, how sadly at odds such sentiments seem compared to today's political rhetoric, and instead recall with me that sense of astonishment that these words were written by a barely educated backwoods rail splitter, a failed politician who almost inexplicably became president of the United States. Do you not Marvel at the gift of such human eloquence, expressing what we most want our country to be and ourselves to be. Second date. It was early in November when a group of us were sitting in the worship center on a Sunday afternoon, listening to Peggy Stern play a jazz piano, accompanied by two colleagues, one on the bass and the other on saxophone. She had no musical score in front of her. It was all in her head and in her fingers. I'm the least musical of persons, but as I sat there and let the music wash over me, I thought to myself, what kind of gift is this? That out of wires and ivory keys, felt hammers and skillful fingers, such sounds could be produced. A gift that, for the moment, took me out of myself and made me glad to be a human being with ears to hear. Third date. It was the evening of October the 11th. The Astros were playing the Mariners in the first game of the American League playoffs. It was the bottom of the ninth inning, and the home team was behind by two runs. A scratch single in a walk put a man on first and second and brought up Jordan Alvarez, a left-handed hitter. To face him, the Mariners brought in a left-handed pitcher who had, the previous year had won the Cy Young Award as the best pitcher in the league. I can't remember if it was the first pitch or the second, but in any case, after Alvarez swung, the ball was found in the upper deck of the right field stands in Minute Maid Park a three-run home run. Astros win. Sadly, I must report to you that there have been few moments in my life when I've been more happy. (laughs) The birth of a child, my wedding day, a couple of others I can recall. But in truth, the joy I felt at that moment was not inexpressible. I was yelling and screaming. But heartfelt. It made me glad to be a human being. Now I know these three examples are hardly on the same level. How could anything compete with Alvarez's walk off home run after all? (laughs) But I relate them to you not just as examples of human excellence, but as occasions for gratitude to God for our very human existence. The author of Hebrews despite what Jeopardy thinks, probably not the Apostle Paul, writes these strange words about Jesus Christ and His coming into the world. For it is clear, he writes, that He came, uh, that He did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, He had to become like His brothers and sisters in every respect. We say so easily that God is love, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that it seems almost taken for granted that God is like that, a good and generous deity, kindly disposed toward the world, but probably not a God who knows us very well or who bothers Himself with our failures or with the really dark places of this world a kind of general benevolent deity, a hallmark sort of God who invites us to believe in pleasant things and not ignore exactly, but overlook the more unpleasant realities of life. Cancer, grief-stricken hearts, bombed-out villages, broken lives, and perhaps most painful of all, our own powers of self-deception and deceit. How could God love that sort of world, those sorts of people in those kind of places? Are human beings really worth all that much trouble? Recently I read about an environmental activist group calling itself the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. It seeks to persuade people to abstain from human reproduction in order to save the planet. Human beings are, in their view, a blight on the planet and unworthy to be reproduced. In a way, I can understand their point of view. After Auschwitz, after Uvalde, after reading about the latest incident of child abuse, I would agree that human beings have a lot to answer for. Maybe despair represents a kind of wisdom. Maybe there really is nothing to believe in except the good of our own disappearance and that right quickly. The author of Hebrews knows that feeling of despair as well. He calls it the fear of death. He does not mean by that the fear of dying or even some fear of hell or painful afterlife, but rather the fear that death might truly have the last word, that nothingness and the multitude of our failures might be stronger than God's love for sinners, God's passion for human beings. The author of Hebrews thinks, though, that that's exactly why God's redeeming love was not aimed at angels, not offered as a lecture on seven habits of effective living, not sent as an algorithm to manage our lives, but rather was aimed at sinful human beings who suffer from their own failures and despair and struggle to believe the good news that has been laid in their laps at Christmas time in the form of a child. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham, all of whom are quite earthen vessels, whose earthiness is not something despised by God, who took such earthiness on himself, becoming in every respect like us, even to the point of voicing our most despairing moments on the cross, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So that even our despair is taken away from us, and all that is left is the gift of this human being who insists on being with us at our darkest moments as well as our most joyful ones. He is the reason that music transports us, that something as silly as a game can lift us out of our seats. That words spoken to a divided country at arms with itself can help us see a vision we had lost. He is the reason Christmas's surprising gift that makes us glad to be a human being. Not hubristically proud, not despairingly resigned, but grateful for the goodness of a God whose love was not some vague, general benevolence, but something painfully, thoroughly, happily human. The theological word for that is incarnate, enfleshed, embodied, human, like humus, earthy, from dust and to dust, belonging always to the God who loves this dust, and who breathed life into it, and who will receive us when all we have left to offer him is our dust. That is the God who comes to us in Jesus Christ. It is enough to make you glad to be a human being. One final date, The Christmas supper, this church celebrates every year, celebrated again this year in the worship center. And we're given the gift of children embodying for us the story of of Jesus' birth with shepherds and angels and wise men and all. Being a grumpy old man, I thought I'd seen enough of these pageants and didn't need a new edition. But I came, dutifully, (laughs) and sat at table with old and new friends, letting the story wash over me again. And again, I found myself moved by the power of this account to draw us out of ourselves, even out of admiring the gifts of these children, to invite us again to go to Bethlehem and see the strange thing the Lord has made known to us. But that gift only enabled us to receive other gifts. I was sitting at a table of old people, like myself. But when the young people came, they taught us a version of the 12 days of Christmas. Our table was eight maids a-milking. We had to stand up and imitate milking a cow. Not what I had in mind that evening. But the joy of the song and of the singers made us do strange things. (laughs) And for a moment we experienced something of the blissful ridiculousness of being human, of being happy, of enjoying each other's company at Christmas time. We weren't angels, I guarantee you that. But for the moment it was enough, perhaps even more than enough, to be human, one of Christmas's surprising gifts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen.